man, 2020, what a damn shit show. Thanks to the amazing folk at Bella Catering who have survived the COVID-19 outbreak in Australia as we are starting to wake back up for sponsoring and bringing us this week's show. If you guys want to cater and you're in Oz, bellacatering.com.au. Catering doesn't mean planning a huge event. It might just mean that for the first time in many months, you've been able to have a stack of your friends and family over and who the hell wants to cook? You're probably doom scrolling through your Twitter, shitting bricks that now North Korea is firing off shit at South Korea. Go to bellacatering.com.au. Get off Twitter just for a split second. Thank you for listening. Bellacatering.com.au. Now, all the President's Minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is my equally angry guest, back for her second helping of this movie. She's one of my favorite online people um, because she's so goddamn forthright and just right on. She's a great 
culture and film writer at places like Bajaba and Brightwell Darkroom. And I've been really digging some of her great new work that's appearing on the Jason Bailey edited Crooked Marquee. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome back my Iranian-American feminist friend, Roxana Haddadi. Welcome back to All the President's Minutes. Thanks, man. It's so it's so reassuring to hear your voice and the <laughs> anger that is within it. It warms my heart. I was like, you know what? I need it. I need it, and I have it, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And we were just, just briefly before we started recording, we were talking about the world being unbelievably different in such a short amount of time. So relative to the time that you guys are listening to the show, we're talking on the 56th minute. The last time we spoke together was, I'm just going to go and fact check it. It was the 21st minute. So like 30 minutes in the show, essentially about, you know, you know, a few months uh, in the, in the run of the episodes being dropped. And since then, like, it's unfat the the change and the events that have happened seem unfathomable, and each one is more maddening than the next. Even mm-hmm. even as soon as like North Korea bombing a South Korean outpost, and you're like, for fuck's sake, why, why now, yeah, why now? Wait till next yeah. year. Twenty twenty one is ripe for bombing <laughs> an international rival. <laughs> We've got heaps of gaps in the calendar. Do you remember the last time we talked, like, the worst thing was just that, like, Trump was evil, and now it's like, Trump is still evil, there's a pandemic, there's, like, you know, bombing, there's so many, like, attempted coups around the world, black people dying in the street, uh, protesters dying in the street, I mean, it's all pretty bad. It's all pretty awful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know if this was just like a long meta experiment because you were like, how can the world change? Like the world changing news of Nixon resigning. So I'm still not sure that this wasn't all a part of your plan <laughs> to hype up the podcast. Oh, uh, th- this is the greatest hype stunt of all time. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> if that was the truth, I, I just lit- like... Each each new wrinkle, um, each new wrinkle has made the you know the the tactile reality of what's being portrayed in all the presidents men feel like fantasy. Like each new wrinkle has gone, you know, when when a when this president walks to a church where he hasn't asked the permission of the archdiocese to a church he's never prayed at, um to hold a Bible upside down when he's not a Christian in the thinly Mm -hmm. veiled idea that America is a holy Christian nation, whatever, like it's ridiculous at this point. Um, The whatever, the whatever is really sending me. Yeah. Like whatever, like whatever, (laughs) like it's, it's, (laughs) he walks there, holds a Bible upside down and to get there, And to show, like, this is like a show of, like, people basically teasing him that the entire previous day he spent the day in the bunker, he gets his forces around the White House in the form of police or, or, um, uh, you know, his presidential guard, if you like, going out there and gassing people and shooting people with pepper bullets and having riot police basically bash people back to create a little haven for him to have a photo op and then walk back to the White House in the most staged piece of ridiculous overt propaganda that maybe I've ever seen. And mm-hmm. 
I mean, Nixon. <laughs> it, I mean, it renders, that's the thing though. It renders you speechless, right? Yes. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, we're living through it and you have to continue on because that's all we can do. Yes. But like, how much can you bear of this? And we talked a lot, you know, in the early days of Trump's presidency about like normalizing and all this stuff. And I think there is still an argument within a certain leftist ideology to be made that what Trump is doing does not exist in a vacuum. And it has been made possible by years of Republican leadership. It was made possible by George W. Bush. It was made possible by Reagan. It was made possible by all these people who I personally think were as evil, they were just nicer about it. And so I feel like... They had there's a veil. There was a veil of cordiality. There was a veil, yeah. And so, you know, there was still this distinct, like, fuck gay people, fuck black people, fuck Muslims. Fuck mentally fuck ill women, people. Mentally fuck mentally Ill. ill people. <laughs> right. I mean, there's there was still Reagan very a, much Reagan that, had a special gift for that. He's like, oh, well, you're mentally yeah. ill? Okay, cool. Just be homeless now. See ya. Right, yeah. Go, go. See you later. <laughs> you on the that. street. Yeah. 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 So, like, it's all still there, obviously, but, like, just to strip it even of any artifice is like, oh, okay, so we don't, we don't need that anymore. <laughs> we don't need, we're just going to go, we're just going to go full Nazi, no veneer <laughs> in the streets, just straight chilling. Okay. And I think you and I laugh because, like, it's desperate and terrible. And if we weren't laughing, we would be screaming. Yeah. So yeah, that's the only it's the only coping mechanism because Mm -hmm. you just want to scream. There's no there's no other. You're either crippled, um, and and Jordan Harper, who's on the show um, in in one of the upcoming episodes uh, just before. Uh, oh, sorry, just after you. So in the next episode, people are going to hear us talk about doom scrolling, which I hadn't heard the term described as that way. Mm. It's like for any of us who are engaged on social media, you are doom scrolling through your timeline for this for this hellscape to reveal another layer of this hell. And there's this crippling sort of feeling where you are in utter helplessness and experiencing trauma. Um, uh, even if you're remotely detached to it. And that's not to then say all of the varying degrees of intensity that ratchets up when people are on the front lines of a protest or on the front lines of this and in a protest being assaulted by police and communicating through social media or documenting horrendous acts of police violence or documenting like horrendous acts of violence that are perpetrated by, you know, a riot squad for a presidential photo op or whatever. It's just like you end up going... You, you try and hope and give yourself that con- cognitive distance that like in 10 years when we're describing this to our kids or when I'm describing it to my kids, you know, my three and almost two-year-old later and going, hey, a president did this, they might go, no, that's not possible. And you're like, yeah, let's go to YouTube, baby. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a watch some videos mm-hmm. together. Daddy's going to take you down a rabbit mm-hmm. hole. And I think what, you know, and like, For me, because like my family, like my parents came separately from Iran to the U.S. and they were here before the revolution. Um, My mom was studying here. She went to Georgetown and then GW. And my dad was here um, and went to Catholic and stuff. And then they met at Catholic and got married in Iran and then came back here like in the 80s to live. And it's one of these things, too, where it's like, you know, for a lot of us (laughs) who are like first gen immigrants, like our parents have these stories and there's always that, you know, there's always that like 
beautiful. You came to the U.S. for a better life. And that's always, you know, the narrative. And like you came to the U.S. and like it's a democratic country and like nothing bad could happen here. <laughs> and it's just like, it's just, and I, and I don't mean that to be like sarcastic to my parents, but just to say that like it's another component of how like the American dream has always been a construction, yes. right? And so for us to see now, oh, well, the things that you po- thought were part of that American dream, like law and order, responsible politicians, people who like gave a fuck working in the system, like, oh shit, yeah, a lot of that is a lie, actually. Yes. And to see it like so fully collapse, I think, in front of us, it's just one of those things that's so staggering. And I think that, you know, that's what keeps us going back to something like all the president's men, because absolutely every presidency has had scandals. We certainly lived through four fucking years of nonstop scandal. Right. And that's part of the agenda. So the part of the agenda is to like deaden you. Yes. Right. So like, Everything becomes the same thing. It's all doom scrolling, right? Like all the stories have the same amount of weight on your news feed. And it's like, well, is one thing really worse than the other? I guess it's all just like a toxic stew of terrible. But yeah, like go back to all the president's men. And it's like shit. Like, yes, people have been evil and power has corrupted for a long time. But like something happened as a result of that work. And it's so fulfilling to see that and think about like, oh, right, like people were working together to try to get this motherfucker out of office (laughs) and to like figure (laughs) out what was going on and to like reach the truth. And now we live in a world that is post-truth. And like, I don't even know what that means for us moving forward. But man, it certainly does make all the president's men that much more fulfilling yeah, <laughs> when it, you're watching it. It's, it's also that, you know, and I think directly relevant to the scene that we're talking about is an editorial discussion between a group mm-hmm. of people deciding what they feel like is the most important news. And it's like at that stage when you're watching what is the most important and it's actually nice to think of like news in some, in some respects being curated of going, no, the polit- the huge political news right now is that, a, a, an upcoming presidential candidate has no vice presidential uh, uh, options. And so he may be announcing mm-hmm. someone. So therefore we're in a political cycle. We're in an election year. They need to shore that up because obviously that is a, an immediate disadvantage of not having like a powerhouse duo that you can sort of hitch your wagon to essentially. And then you've got this where it's like, there's still tenuous links, but, but at least there's the fortitude of the people that are involved to go, no, we're going to keep exploring this because if, if we take this to the nth degree, it has massive implications for, for the public and the public need to know. And the major, major difference is, and, you know, I, I remember learning this in a variety of history classes, talking about propaganda machines in Nazi Germany, whether it's Lenny Riefenstahl, you're talking about all of the propaganda machines in, in, in especially Stalin era Soviet Russia, you know, using huge art, like where he's, you know, they, they, they painted that famous photograph of him, you know, holding this beautiful, um, little girl who Stalin had just had her parents murdered. Like, you know, that was the underscoring thing. And it's like, you hear about these things in abstraction and then you take it to the contemporary landscape and it's like, well, here's, you know, here's a, a president who is acting without any morality whatsoever. And he's got a propaganda arm 
or this party has a propaganda arm that is just like reinforcing this. And, you know, even the, the, the far left uh, communicators sometimes get hung up on things that they shouldn't, but, it, and we can, we could argue that that point as well and agree, but man, like watching Tucker Carlson, <laughs> watching Tucker Carlson clips with puzzled face as he tells people that the, the black people who are peacefully protesting on the streets are coming for you, for your role, your role in making America bad and coming for your children for the state of America. You just like, I don't know how, how you hear what's happening in the streets and you translate it to that unless you're making propaganda actively. Yeah. I mean, real talk. I don't think there's been any force worse for America, like as a whole than Fox news. And that's super hyperbolic. Like that's super, obviously like there are tons of things that are worse for America, but I feel like in our lifetimes, like what we have lived through, it feels like Fox news has been like the most destabilizing propaganda, militaristic, white supremacist, boot fucking licking organization (laughs) 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 and it just like and I think about it and it's like and I feel like that is really when I go back to all the president's men I'm like you know what because they didn't there wasn't a Fox News no. At the same time, who was like, oh, actually, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, we heard one of them is Jewish and therefore their reporting <laughs> is compromised. I mean, you know what I mean? There he's, he's, there a re- that- he's a Republican crisis actor, Bob Woodward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't just that, like, mind-numbingly dumb shit that people were just spewing out with no moral conscience whatsoever and that people were just fucking eating up either from a place of racism or desperation or paranoia or hatred or fear whatever makes you a fox news watcher first of all fuck you and second of all (laughs) like you have contributed to what i consider like the destruction of fact and truth in this country so like congratulations you worthless <laughs> condom full of trash i mean i don't even know there aren't any words there aren't any words and, after it and the murdoch influence <laughs> is in australia oh my god the murdoch influence is in yeah. australia too our conservative yeah. media and it's like and i feel like it's permeated almost everything i feel like the standard in australia is like fox news light you know our, our, all of our major uh, our major television stations in Australia, you know, are, are, are literally propagating this sort of hegemonic view of Australia. It's white Australia. It is what it is. There are no problems. We live in this like great country. And it's like, you know that, you know that like colonial forces came here and invaded and in a country. Like we've had huge legal battles. We've had all this progress, but it's like this constant stream this 24-hour news cycle of this like magazine version of australia that keeps battering people to death and like propagating all of this racism and then like you know every now and then you know there was a a great couple of films that came out a a dynamic duo of movies in fact called one was called the final quarter and one was called the australian Mm -hmm. dream and it came out last year and it was about an australian uh, australian football rules player by the name Adam, Adam Goods. He was an indigenous Australian and he, he, he retired early 
He was one of the best players the game has ever seen. He was an Australian of the year. He was a political activist. And the racist, like, majority in Australia started booing him at games. Like, every time he touched the ball. Like, that was their, that was their, uh, you know, he, he got, he got called a racist slur at a game. He called that person out. The game tried to respond to like cover it up. And then later on, as he continued to bring up like this racism that didn't go away with that one interaction, it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And then eventually people booed him out of the game. Like he was being booed just for touching the ball, not for doing anything bad, just for touching the ball. And everyone's like, no, it wasn't racist. And both of these wonderful documentaries that came out, like taking different lenses on it, both just underscored, yeah, it 100% was racism. Like, there's no other reason for it. It was racism. Like, it's Australia's racist. You had all these racist media people coming along and saying it. And and if they don't agree that it was racist, it was either consciously racist or it was unconsciously, which is the greater concern that if you are doing this, this is what it means. And I I think that in this country, that's something that is still, it's still reckoning. Like, Early, like I think it was last year. You would, lo- oh, I would have, lo- I would love to have been sitting on a couch next to you when I watched this, on an Australian morning television program. They had a panel of three white people, one a white blonde host, and two other political commentators, broadly conservative and also racist, definitely racist, talking about. <laughs> the adoption of indigenous kids into white families. Now, Australia has a really dark history um, called the stolen generation where essentially by government policy, young indigenous kids from missions and things like that out in central Australia and around in rural Australia were farmed out to white families to essentially breed our indigenous population out of existence. And this is a blight on our history and a very dark dark age that still has grief riddled through it. It's only a generation ago. Like it's the parents of my friends who are part of this stolen generation who are only like rediscovering their true indigenous roots because it was essentially sanctioned by the government to squash it into fucking nothingness. And so you fast forward to 2019, this is back in sort of like the seventies and sixties. And it was all kind of, it was all kind of abolished and the white Australia policy was, is something if people want to research it and you're an international listener, just do some Googling. If you want you, you to curl your hair, um, if you want some feel good reading in 2020, I say that with a deep amount of sarcasm, but extreme sarcasm, extreme please, please note. note, please note extreme sarcasm. <laughs> it's fucking awful. Every part about it is awful. But what's more awful is that in 2019, a bleach blonde blue eyed host and two white Australians are on a panel discussing what should be happening with indigenous youth and should we be doing it? And essentially these three people proposed the stolen generation again in 2019, like normalized the concept of replacing indigenous kids who are at risk with parents who are in trouble rather than diagnosing all of the systemic racism in Australia, rather than diagnosing that 40% of indigenous people and uh, are incarcerated and they're only 3% of our population rather than talking about the fact that they don't have the right housing, the right education, the right support, the right cultural support rather than all of the entire population of Australia, not potentially having the right indigenous education around our cultures and the many varied cultures that now occupy Australia being made and mandated like in New Zealand to learn about the indigenous cultures of this country. They just proposed the new stolen generation. And if you were sitting there as a person that I feel like had any kind of morality, like 
me or anyone that I know that is listening to this show, you would just be, you'd be floored to almost, like just staggered. Um, and what's actually a relief in the most recent civil unrest that's sort of echoing now all the way through to Australia in the Black Lives Matter process is that those people are being retroactively sued for promoting the civil oh, wow. generation. And, and that's the kind of shit that needs to happen to disrupt the, the, the stranglehold of this like blatant, it's, and it's, you know, what's not, not so blatant, but it's this really dark, pervasive, conservative, systemically racist Australian media ideology. Cause in all the positions of power, all, uh, all dominant conservative voices to the largest extent. And I think, I think one of the things too, that like, we have to talk about here as well is it's like all of this is part of like grander ideologies, right? Like I do think that they're like when you're talking about the colonial effort in Australia, you then have to talk about relations, I think between the British and the Irish, because like my understanding, (laughs) right. Is that like the British were sending the Irish to Australia and like basically making it a prison colony because the British were racist against the Irish and the Irish were racist against the Aboriginal people. And then obviously like in the U S we have obviously the fact that like black slaves built this country and it was a country stolen from the indigenous people who lived here first. So like you go back far enough and even not that far, even just back to the 1960s and the 1970s and fuck this week when there were what four black men found hanged around the U S I mean, like it's still happening to this day, obviously. And it is shaped by these forces of like, at least in my belief, capitalism, and how much we prize individuality within capitalism as if, well, all you need to do is work really hard and nothing else shapes you. It's just your labor. And so if you don't have a job, well then just like you're a lazy piece of shit. It's not about like, it couldn't be, it it couldn't be any other factor. You're Could just, be any other factor. People you're just ignore a piece it. Of shit. Right. You're just a piece of shit. But it's like, I feel like there's so much of this. Like, how do we assign value and worth to a human life? And so much of it is like based on like your productivity to the economy or like what do you do and for a job and all this stuff. And I feel like so much of this is about like we see people as products rather than people. And so when I think about something like what's going on right now and like what we're seeing right now, it's like, God forbid, like people are just asking to be given the barest amount of humanity. And you have people like you mentioned, like the Australian news hosts or like Fox news here who I feel like basically their reaction is like, Oh, we can't do that. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) we can't see you as people. Like that's not like, that's not okay. Like that's not allowed. And And I feel like it makes like, Oh, that's not, there's no systemic racism in Australia. It's like, huh? What? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like so much of it is because like, I just think the word politics, even makes people uncomfortable yeah. because it's like, oh, like you don't talk about politics. Like that's not appropriate. Like 
everything around us is politics. And I might have talked about this like the last time that I was on the show, but like when I interviewed Boots Riley for Sorry to Bother You, and I asked him about like his political motivations and making the movie, like one thing he said, he was like, everything is politics. Like your entire worldview is politics. Even if you're out here making a movie about the status quo, the status quo is in and of itself politics. Yes. So when I think about like, people who are like, oh, like you're marching in the streets or like these people are like, you know, last week you told us not to wear masks and this week you're telling us to wear masks and you're marching in the street or whatever. It's like the people in power will always be willing to change the conversation away from you to discredit you and to keep you on your knees. And it's like, what are you going to do to get out of that? Like we're seeing it right now and we're seeing the amount of struggle that it takes. Like it takes work and it takes time. And I, and I think that I, I, love, me, I love, honestly, I love, I love how people are like, how dare you go and put people at risk? I'm putting myself at risk. <laughs> yeah. I would rather, yeah. I, I'm not only marching in a time when there's not a global pandemic, I'm marching in a time that there's a global pandemic because it's not even stopping during a global pandemic. Like it right. hasn't even stopped. And so, so when people are like, how dare you be so irresponsible? Stop. How dare you? compel me to want to risk my life or potentially the life of someone who's immunocompromised around me because maybe I'm under 30 and I'm, you know, or, you know, mid thirties like I am and I'm good. Like there's no problem. Like I'm going to go out there. I'm hoping that I'm healthy. I'm hoping I don't discover I've got any kind of latent issues, but you know, I've got family members who do. So like if, if I go out and march and I've, you know, even if I do have social distancing and wear a mask and sanitize my hands and I get the goddamn thing, then I've got to isolate to protect my family. Like it's like, I just don't get the self-sacrifice element that, that is not part of the narrative, but you know, I think we're going to bang our heads again. What is part of the narrative in many of these things? Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, I, I think what you said, it's steering away from it. it they'll steer the convo conversation away from what's right and like turn it on its head. Like two weeks ago, it's like open everything. And now it's like, how dare you risk? How dare yeah. you risk us? Yeah. I just think it's funny because it's like, well, I mean, looting is a sort <laughs> of opening everything. <laughs> <laughs> we are forcefully opening I mean, and acquiring goods. Right. That's capitalist, yeah, I'm huh? Sorry. That, that's what you guys wanted, was <laughs> it not? My bad. My bad. Did you see that story that came out that, like, the cops claimed that a Rolex store had been looted in New York and yes. they were, like, using it to smear? And then Rolex was like, nah, dog. Like, nobody took anything from us. <laughs> no, no, nobody took anything. None of our valuables were on display. A couple of windows were smashed. We're fine. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, they're like, we're fine. We're fine. We're good. We're good. Oh, oh bless. Uh, All right. Let's uh, uh, this is good. Let's stay angry. Let's get into a newsroom with two of the twelve angry men. Ben Bradley and a bunch of people who increasingly what seems like a fantasy, um, cared about what was in the public interest and how to frame it and to make sure that you know, that old thing, factually accurate, that it was factually <laughs> accurate uh, and, 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 and worthwhile of and worthwhile of the time. So Roxana and I are going to watch this together. You guys are going to listen along. We're going to come back and talk about it. The, we have the Bremer diary, wish to kill Nixon. He took a car trip to New York, Ottawa, and Washington to kill him. We have the Senate approving the ABM treaty. ABM. That's and of course, mine. we have uh, McGovern offering the VP spot to 
Everybody. Yeah, that's news. I have. Because everybody's been offered it. Now, I'll tell you I what news some when somebody great. accepts it. That, that'll be good. <laughs> yeah. Here's some great art. Yeah, big mistake. Governor Humphrey, yeah. breakfast, yeah. breakfast yeah. smiling their asses. Oh, is that great? Oh, look at this. <laughs> <laughs> Humphrey said, I am George's friend. I think he's really I'm ready to be his friend. I am his Sounds friend. Sounds friendly. <laughs> Very friendly. I'll be helping him in ways he never dreamed possible. <laughs> uh, 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 breakfast followed by lunch. Well, we got the school teachers on Capitol Hill. They want a 17% increase in pay, or this fall they go on strike. Harry, Harry, I, I think we could mention that this might be the time to go to the front page on. Uh... Why is that man smiling? Is one of my favorite lines in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing it out there. Why is that man smiling? Uh, what what a good Love little. It. What a good little insight into an editorial meeting. Great little moment in this movie. Very understated moment, but I just love the chemistry and the naked authenticity of all those guys. Like, they're all busting each other's balls. They're all like, ooh, look at the pretty picture that's going to get, you know, a few people to pick up the paper that may not have. Um, Jack Warden, just ban Jack Warden. Like, it's enough. <laughs> it's enough. And I just, I feel like there's so much, like, there's just such a, smart alecky sort of vibe of all of those guys like, like and like you said like just that sense of like we've all worked together before obviously yes we all know what the mission of the paper is and we all know what we're here to do and like that universality of purpose i feel like is so and not necessarily unique to a newsroom but it just permeate the newsroom you know like when everybody is working on deadline and somebody's working on one thing and somebody else is working on another thing but there is very much like this delicate dance that is happening to get all of the pieces out the door correctly and so like an editorial meeting like you said it's like being a fly on the wall in terms of like the editors each value their section so highly and they're all going to go to bat for their reporters and the stories that they're working on. Like, I feel like an editorial meeting is one of the greatest examples of trust between an editor and a reporter, right? Because like as a reporter, you're hoping that your editor is going to go in there and represent your story to the best of their ability to like get you the space that you need. And in turn, the editor has to really think like, okay, you guys can deliver what you promised. Otherwise, you're going to make us all look like assholes. And so it's like, I just love the vibe of that meeting. I love it too. And it's such a great inversion of what we've seen so far. The boys are always looking in on these meetings and later they will participate in them. But it's so cool to hear what's important to that paper. And I think it's such like, it does so much for that whole like contextualizing and framing what is important for the people at that time, how these guys interact. And I actually think for all the ball busting and talking, the newest member of the crew of editors who starts to say, hey, we should publish this story. You can hear how tentative he is. He's clearly a new guy in the team. And I just really think it's a sweet moment for all these ball busting smart Alex to just like give him the air to talk without completely squashing him. They more are the bigger personality, the bigger personalities, the Howards and um, uh, um, uh, the Howard and Jack Warden's character. And then the Metro desk editor, like they will fight it out about what's important and let Bradley commentate. But this young, uh, slightly, you know, new to this table guy, like he's like, Oh, I think we should maybe do this. And they kind of like give him the air, which I think is good. I just like, 
however authentic it is, I just love that they've at least got the candor there, but I just love this entire ball busting exchange is great. And it's not that they don't care. They just care deeply about their individual section and their guys going about, and even their individual reporters in their section, we should take over the Watergate story, you know, like, which is later on in this, in this entire scene. But I love this. I love this for a, you know, when we're talking about journalism, movies and journalism, movies as a genre, I think an editorial meeting is like, if you don't have it, it's a big question. It's a big question. You know, movies like Shattered Glass have it. Movies like The Insider have it. Movies like Spotlight have got it, like laden throughout the movie. All the President's Men has it. And it's like that one question where people are like, oh, Citizen Kane is a journalism movie. It's like, really? It's a capitalism movie. <laughs> it's a capital. Right, it's, yeah. It, doesn't feel, it's, it feels like a capitalism movie. It feels like an indictment of the American experience, like a world builder, not so much a journalism like nuts and bolts journalism movie. But this scene for me is like, this is a qualifying statement. If ever you needed it, it's seeing behind the curtain of an editorial meeting. It's like, that makes it a journalism movie. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Spotlight is a great example too, because I think Spotlight does this as well, where you have the editors admitting that they fucked up. Yes. And you have that great moment in All the President's Men where Bradley calls on Bernstein and Woodward for fucking up. And there's very much that chastisement of like, you have to get the work fucking right. And we're used to that, I think. Like, we're used to that downward, moving upward. Like, yes. if you make a mistake on the ground, of course, it's going to permeate and it'll back the paper of course but then you had that great inverse in spotlight where it was the editors admitting no we fucked this up and we missed this yes like we didn't pay attention and we didn't know and i honestly really love those two moments because i think with spotlight you do see the impact of a diminished newsroom yes and cut finances and a loss of institutional knowledge in terms of the community they're covering. Whereas with all the president's men, it's like Woodward and Bernstein. Yes. They come into this being experienced, but also hungry. They have connections, but they don't know everything, but we're alongside them. Like as they're learning everything. And so it's very interesting for us as viewers to be part of that journey. But then you get into this ed meeting And the Ed meeting, it's like, it almost feels like everybody there already knows everything they need to know. (laughs) So you stop, like, we stop being on that journey of discovery and you're just marveling at how much these old dudes have it. And of course, to me watching it now, there is that sense of like the Washington Post has always been a very white, very male newsroom. And that's changed in recent years. And of course it was unique because it was owned by Catherine Graham. And so there was a female owner and that was a big deal. And so I don't want to like romanticize it too much by being like these white guys were what was keeping (laughs) journalism together. (laughs) You know, like I don't think either of us is saying that. I I don't think we, I don't think you could say it without like breaking into laughter. Like, but but yeah, like I, I'm looking at your face and you're like cheesing right now. Like your grin is like ear to ear, but it's just like, that's not what we're saying. What we're no. saying is like, it feels so good to watch people be good at their jobs. Yeah. And, and like there's a, there's a greatness to that. And be, and also what's great is as we are seeing these guys get better at balancing and knowing the ins and outs of their stories, these editors need to know every in and out of every story that is in their section, which makes it, 
all the more an intimidating prospect when they're sitting around the table pitching it is because they have to know it so well and know what the underlying strength is to pitch harder at it. And so mm -hmm. that's what's really cool about these guys going, knowing what is big, knowing what's important, knowing they've got the right people on it and they're doing it. And it's, just, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, we never thought that doing this now, we would love to say, and I would love to say, and I can say this probably more surely about an Australian journal, the state of Australian journalism when it comes to our like current news organisations and newspapers and stuff like that is, I never thought that the difference between 1976 and 2020 in an Australian newsroom would be nothing. Like it's still old <laughs> white guys around the table, probably busting their balls and in probably a way more conservative leaning because that's what's kept them in the job ideology that has kept them there. Right? Yeah. Like let's service yeah. the ideology. Let's service the, the, the ego of, of who's actually ultimately funding us. Mm -hmm. But you know, like at this time, I think it's reflective. We can say, look, this is, this is, these guys were, you know, these guys had been writing since they had to wear hats with a little, like, little card on it that said journalists stuck into the rim, you know. Like, they've been writing for a long fucking time. And so they, they come to it with that experience. You can see the lines in their faces. You see, like, you know, Bradley, you know, you know, scrunch his forehead, like, why is that man smiling? Like, the greatest line ever. And and that, you know, of, of, all, of all political vice presidential candidates, why is that person smiling just in general? Like, this is going to be hell. But... Um, I, I think that that's what, what's so great about this scene. And it's, and again, it's what, when later on the boys are involved in the editorial process and what's important and, and what is going to be a important to the public interest, but be important to protecting the paper, because ultimately the factual accuracy and the strength of the sources when they're, you know, revealing this huge exclusive, um, or what begins as their exclusive and then permeates through the entire American media, um, I think that that's, you know, this is a good sort of pulse check. No matter what they're doing, it has to penetrate these guys. And right now it hasn't. And so in the forthcoming scenes, we're going to see, you know, the great scene of Bradley, like, you know, like anything else, anything else? Like that's the perennial question for these great editors is like anything else, anything else? Got it? Any yeah. Mm -hmm. Nothing else. Okay. Well, you need to work harder. You know what else I love about this? And I want your opinion on this too. How do you, I mean, we've mentioned that Bradley is like, why the fuck is Humphrey laughing? But what do you feel about how they treat McGovern in this scene? I think, I think that these guys just feel like he's been made to be a joke. Like, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So he's like, it's I, the only, like, I, I think that they are seeing the writing on the wall for McGovern long before McGovern sees the writing on the wall. Like the, all these guys have seen political campaigns that have worked. And I think that they've just dismissed it like, Oh, Nixon's coming back. Like there's no way he's not coming back. That basically mm -hmm. is how that they feel. And I think that, you know, that's been some of the challenge, you know, with the entire democratic party process leading up to this. It's like, you, you know, like, Anyone would vote, you know, I made a joke talking to Matt Zolazites on an upcoming episode that like, I think, I feel like in America, if there was an inanimate carbon rod running opposed to Donald Trump, like people would vote for the rod. Like that would just be <laughs> like, it just could, it could be anyone. But I think that with McGovern now, they've just seen him turn into a joke. They've, they've probably seen how many stories of like letters and scandals and people 
going out in shock therapy and like revelations, they're like, I don't know, this guy's not going to recover. So let's basically not talk about it. Like, um, mm-hmm. and, and that, I think that that's probably, you could definitely say it's unfair, but it's like, it's what these guys have seen. They've got the miles. They're like, this isn't, this isn't going to happen. And the unfortunate thing is that later on, there were probably many editorial meetings like this that were looking at the car crash that is your current president and going, this guy's not going to happen all this nonsense, surely he cannot be elected. And so that, I think that comfort and hubris is probably one of the things that is dangerous. Um, And Mm -hmm. what's exciting about new blood when it comes to Woodward and Burns, seeing these outsiders who are hungry that are pushing the envelope. Um, But yeah, I I, I get that feeling that it's both kind of experience and miles and they've seen the writing on the wall, but sometimes it's, you've got to make sure that you're staying in touch. Yeah, I, it's interesting to me because it's like in an ed meeting at this point, people would know what Woodward and Bernstein are working on. So it's sort of fascinating to me that even with that knowledge that the two of them are chipping away at this story that everybody sort of senses could be huge, right? If they put all the pieces together and if they get enough people to go on the record, it's just interesting to me that even with the knowledge that their reporters are working on this, nobody in that room entertains the idea that Nixon won't get reelected. Yes. You know, so like, it's like you said, it's, it's very much like the cynicism of being a journalist because like even in, you know, I mean, I'll say about in college, like I worked at my college newspaper all four years. And by the time you're a senior, <laughs> like your student government association, you're like these fucking idiots. You Ro- know, Roxanne, like, Roxanne's got her feet on the desk. Why is that woman smiling? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Like, why are you so amused? What the hell? But yeah, it's like, it's very much how once you are covering like the ins and outs of something long enough, it's like you see the patterns in it, right? Yes. So I just, I love this dichotomy of like, yes, Woodward and Bernstein are working on this story. But even in that moment, I think they can't bring themselves to consider how big it could be. It's like they know it could be big and they think it could be big, but they don't know quite how big. Yes. And then there's McGovern who, like you said, is like mostly just making a fool of himself at this point. Nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be his VP (laughs) and the democratic party is like pretty much in shambles. So it's just, I feel like that's a really interesting moment because I think it's one of those times where you see, See what the average person thinks about what's going on. And you get that with some of the White House employees that they interview and a few of other the few of the other like ancillary characters. But I feel like it's one of those glimpses of like, what does real America think about this? Yeah. And, and, and it's, and <laughs> and it's a, like it's, real America is gonna vote for Nixon again. Yeah, they don't care. That's what's gonna happen. And and yeah. it's and I think at the end of this meeting there's that beautiful thing, like it's a dangerous thing for our paper that some of mm-hmm. the guys have got a sniff that, you know, and these are the experienced reporters going, if this is true, this could be really dangerous for us because also yeah. there's a danger of going, it's really hard in the news business to be the pioneer, to have an exclusive that is going to break. Like I think of Ronan Farrow and Jody Cantor and Megan Twoey and folks like that, that in the Me Too stories are like building this unbelievable story that feels like it's bursting at the seams and they have to be so deliberate with everything that 
when you're on the precipice of that, it's like, oh shit, this could be, we better have our ducks in a row because these mm-hmm. powerful people are not going to be happy when this happens. You know, that's sort of a more contemporary equivalent of this, but it's like, I, I, that's, that's what I find really interesting about this is that even though it hasn't gotten any legs yet, the prospect of it having legs is scary. So then that kind of puts Bradley yeah. into action. Like, what do you actually have? Cause we need mm-hmm. to know what that is now. We need to get runs on the board. We need, we need to make sure that this is moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. It's like at a certain point, the film shifts from what are you gathering and what have you found out to like, what is the veracity of this? Yes. Like how much can you confirm mm. and is the paper ready to fight the denial? Yes. And that goes back to that, you know, you're going to tackle this later on, obviously, but the great phone call when they're trying maybe, to figure out, like, is it confirmed? Even, is it not confirmed? Maybe even with like, you. Maybe even oh, with yeah, you. Maybe even with me. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, you know, it's like, what, like, what do you actually have? Yes. And I think you're right. Like, this scene really captures the people who would be asking those questions. Yes. And in a very effective, quick scene, makes you believe, oh, okay, I I would want to provide these editors with the answers they want. You know, like somehow it just, it immediately gets us on their side as to trusting these people and knowing that they're good at what they do. Like you almost become like Bernstein and Woodward in wanting to please them. And that's, it's just, it's done so efficiently. I feel like that at first you don't even notice and then you're like, oh no shit. Like I do, I do want them to be proud of like what's going on here. I do want them so to be just- proud. I do want them to have all the facts and I need them mm-hmm. to have the ducks in the road because the stakes that increase throughout this movie, like the stakes get higher and higher. And it's like, you know, it, you know, the, the, the biggest scenes and, and the great scenes is like with Bradley, you know, nothing's at stake here. The greatest scene in this movie, nothing's at stake here, you know, maybe except, you know, the first amendment of the constitution and maybe the future of the country. Like yeah. until those states. NBD. NBD. <laughs> <laughs> NBD guys. All good. Just, you know, just, just sit with that for a minute. Carry on. Carry, Carry on. on. Whatever. It's fine. Um, yeah. Like I think that this is the start of that scene of like it, there are really practical beginnings to that conversation of like, really great journalism is that foundational understanding of having all the ducks in a row in the story and people, people being super clear on what it actually means. And I think that what's great in this scene is they don't, and, and what prompts Bradley's next move with, with Harry Rosenfeld and Jack and, and, and Martin Balsam's Howard is, um, what is the actual story we're going for here? We've seen some illegal shit happening. We've seen some weirdness. We've got some sort of conspiratorial flavors, but what is the story? And uh, I think that that's like, once they actually find that the story is, you know, political malfeasance and, and weird sort of uh, internal espionage and fuckery probably is the best word to say, like as, as, as the grandest scandal. And then essentially that the president of the United States is like, you know, got little teams of people who disrupt his other political parties and spy on them illegally then it's like, oh, well, that's the story. Then that that headline writes itself. Like everyone wants to know what's next, that we've exhaustively examined everything, that we've proved everything, that we've gotten all the culpable parties in there. And it becomes sort of a self, you know, a self-fulfilling ideology of like us, you know, just making sure we're being exhaustive and you write the whole story and there it is all on paper. Mm-hmm. 
And I think one of those things, too, that's really interesting about this is it's like there were obviously people who were sloppy and making dumb mistakes during Watergate because, Mm -hmm. like, how else would you unravel the story? But I also feel like it's one of those things where when I think about now, it's like obviously these people are also all sloppy and making stupid mistakes. And there have been tons of stories. But I just feel like this this sense of you felt bad almost about making a mistake like Mm -hmm. i don't know necessarily if that exists anymore which isn't to say that nixon felt bad like clearly nixon did not like give a fuck do you know what i mean but i felt (laughs) like at a certain point like at a certain point it was really untenable for him to continue being president whereas i feel like right now we live in a space where i don't think that the Republican Party would allow for anybody to be like, no, I'm good. Like, I'm leaving. Like, I just, I don't <laughs> feel like, <laughs> I don't feel like nah, that sort it's of. Fine. It's fine. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't feel like that sort of group shame exists anymore. But also, and in, I feel in, like, in a post truth world, like, Nixon had shame to say, I've got to get out of here because I think I'm going to be perjured. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. Ch- the, ch- the challenge is that. In a post-truth world, like, you've got whole networks that are arguing, oh, well, you know, it's okay that the president blatantly lied every day of this press conference or every month You're right. or lied about stuff. And it's like, can like if Nixon lied in a press conference or a national address or JFK or even George W. Bush, like, he was stupid, but in he was stupid and callous and, you know, corrupt and whatever you want, like, all of the other charges, yes – War criminal potentially, yes, but mm, potentially, potentially. Yeah, well, yeah, yes, yes yeah, yes, like convicted, yes, yes. <laughs> able to be convicted, <laughs> sure. But but I yes. think when he's sitting in front of a press conference and he's saying something outwardly, it's like, I mean, people were so shocked. It's like, oh, you know, the WMDs lies, like all those revelations are absolutely unbelievable. Like that 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 is a that is a straight out lie. Where the lie originated, questionable, but a lie nonetheless that came from that, the, the power brokers in that cohort and all that sort of stuff, you know, um, uh, and it came from there, but in a standard press conference, he's not lying every day. And definitely Obama's not sitting up in a press conference every day, lying, like lying about stats or lying about something every right. single day I because, your point. because they actually cared about what that was seemingly they cared about their reputation and what they were actually saying. Whether they were misled or whether it was a calculating effort to mislead someone, you know, you know, do you have spies in our country? You know, the answer is, do you have spies in our country and a president saying no is different to like, no, there's no coronavirus coming into our country. We're, we're fine. We're all good. Like, it's completely yeah. different. It's like, well, now today, Texas, 4,000 new cases. Forget other parts of the country, but just one state, 4,000 new cases. Hundreds of thousands already dead. What are we doing? I definitely, yeah, I definitely hesitate to like apply any sort of restorative <laughs> lens to Bush just because I do Fair. think I, I, I honestly like I say this all the time. Like I think in a lot of ways, like Trump has broken a lot of our brains. Yes. Just because we're so unaccustomed to this that I think a lot of the time, I don't want to say we forget, 
But I think like, at least I think about Bush and it's like, I was a teenager and I probably don't remember that much from when I was a teenager or whatever. But I, I do remember even then being like aghast at the shit they were saying and how transparently false it seemed. But I think the difference then was that I think, and this is just my own bias, so like keep that in mind. I think the reality is that like George Bush was a war criminal who started a lot of international wars. And I think for American audiences that isn't as repellent in terms of what Trump is doing now. Like I feel like a lot of Trump policies right now are about fucking over Americans he doesn't really <laughs> like. And so and so I feel like for us like that feels somehow more disgusting and, you know, like more inappropriate because it's like, you're the president of this country. Right. So you're right. Like when he goes up there and he's like, Oh, we have a, we have a AIDS vaccine and people aren't dying from coronavirus anymore. And like black people love me. You know, it feels very (laughs) like, man, as it's like, as an American, like that's like, fuck you. Like, I don't even know how to respond to that. And so I feel like that sort of breaks our brains. But like as a middle Eastern person, when I think, about the stuff that George Bush was doing, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like Bush was doing the same shit. And honestly, to a certain degree, Barack Obama's drone warfare program was also not great. Right. (laughs) We just don't talk about it. You know, so it's like, you know, you could criticize any president, Democrat or Republican on a variety of issues or whatever. But again, it just goes back to the fact that like at a certain time, it felt like there were consequences and like there was an idea of what America wanted to be or project about itself. And now it's like things are just so divided and so partisan and it feels like there isn't a solution. Like I really don't know what the solution is because I don't feel like anybody is willing to budge from where they are. And what's a because relief, we've had- and what's a relief about this movie and when we go back to it is that people had party lines and allegiances. Yeah. But morality yeah. morality was the compass. Like shared yeah. value, shared morals. A lie is a lie. An mm-hmm. intentional act of espionage internally that is like atta- essentially an attack on the American people is an attack on the American people. You know, mm-hmm. an act being racist is racist. Mm-hmm. You know, a, um, a, a president acting like a buffoon can get skewered from both sides, like from from both political parties and, and basically cause Republicans to start, you know, rallying around potential new candidates, new people that they're like, this guy can't stay in here for, for eight years. We're going to get him out. Like, even if we're going to run someone else, you know, we're going to run someone yeah. better. Um and that would be the reaction or all going like, oh man, I can't believe like this guy, like he's such a dope. What, you know, we were duped, you know, we mm-hmm. don't want it. We don't necessarily want a democratic president, but we absolutely don't want this guy again. Like what's the Republican party doing to get this guy out and get someone who's better. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, it feels mm-hmm. like that's the world that that was like the, the, the agreement almost like it was like this better agreement of like, yeah, like at the end of the day, it's not going to be drawn down these really farcical party lines. It's going to be about morality and human rights and people. But like, it's just, it's, it's now this, I don't know, like this complete digitized, you know, 
mainlining of this tribal bullshit constantly. And I think what's really interesting that we're seeing now is it's like, I think people really, you know, I don't think, I think a lot of Americans, to be pretty honest, I don't think they think about party affiliations. I think they're issue-based. So I think that, like, I think the parties themselves, especially the Democratic Party, although, you know, like, I'm a leftist or whatever, like, (laughs) I think they have failed, (laughs) like, I think they have failed at maintaining party platforms. So, like, you have all these people, as an example, who want Medicare for all and who want socialized healthcare, but hate the idea of socialism. And so they don't understand they've been brainwashed by the Republican Party to think that this would be like the socialism would like crush America. But at the same time, like their economic realities make them want universal health care. But they can't reconcile those two ideas. Right. So it's like you don't know then what party you are or what you support or who you're going to vote for, because the issues that really matter to most Americans are not being appropriately addressed by either part. So I think to your point, too, it's like you have so much of like the parroting of specific ideas like Fox News is always going to be racist and anti-choice and communist fear-mongering but they're not going to offer any solutions for any like everyday American problem. Yes. And I also think to a certain degree like we've seen 4 years of the Democrats sort of being ineffectual in terms of countering what Trump does. Like what really bums me out every time is like when Trump does some dumb shit, like as an example, what you brought up, like the church photo op, right? He goes to this church, he tear gas people to get them out of the way. He has a Bible. The journalists ask, is it your Bible? He says it's a Bible, (laughs) you know, like whatever, like, you know, like it, it's dumb as shit. It's the kind of stuff that you watch and it like it makes your heart curdle a little bit. And then like two days later, like what does Nancy Pelosi do? Like she has a stunt photo shoot where she's reading passages from her Bible to prove to us that she's a better Christian. Like, I'm sorry, as an atheist, I don't care about that. I want to know like what you're doing for the country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. So it's like it's depressing to me that in the past four years, like we've allowed Trump to dictate so much of how we engage with him. It just feels like, but it feels like you and I go, the obvious thing to do is go out, be helping people protest. mm -hmm. And then when there's a press conference going, I'm not going to have people shot for a photo op. I don't need to prove that this, I'm out here on the streets with these people. They need to be heard. I'm their representative. Like Mm -hmm. let's stop the bullshit. And Mm -hmm. some Republicans are doing it better. You're like, see Mitt Romney. And you're like, I don't know. Oh my god! You're like Mitt Romney's like marching and saying smart things, and people are like, "Hey, Mitt Romney's smart." You're like, "No, he's not. He's an idiot." But let's just say, "No, he's that terrible. He's yeah. terrible." But yeah. just in that yeah. moment, he made the right political decision, and people are like, "Wow, pat yeah. that guy on the back," and you're like, "No, he's an idiot." But absolutely yeah. credit where it's due. He said the right things. He shut the fuck up, and he walked alongside the people protesting, saying that you know what they were marching for was righteous, mm-hmm. and and it's like. That's enough. That's enough in that moment. Um, there's no stunts that need to be said. You're going to garner way more. And then it's like, then the runs on the board happen after. Like, no one's providing any solutions. These are some solutions. And this is not going to mm-hmm. cost America that much money. It's going to cost us this mm-hmm. much money. You know, like, and having some practical stuff that can be implemented quickly so that people can get 
behind it. But it just feels like, I mean, it happens. The same thing happens in Australia. People get the, the fear mongered. They get fear mongered out of change because of some basic whatever reason. Um, you know, any minor change to the status quo, they like freak out, and so they can't possibly do it. But the the liberal, you know, uh, progressive governments in this country are deeply ineffectual as well. Like they're just mm-hmm. just the worst. And you're like, I don't blame the other party. You guys lost this. They didn't win. You guys lost. Yeah. Like, I mean, to be fair, like, in terms of optics, it's like, it feels like whatever Trump does, the Democrats then decide that they have to do a better version of it. And at a certain point, it's like, stop letting him drive what the conversation is. Like, just break out of the cycle of feeling like you need to react to him every time and just do something differently. But it's like you said, it's like, I, you know, I struggle to figure out like who our leading voices are in implementing that change. And I do think that's something interesting too, that all the president's men does is like in this scene, we do see these editors sort of brushing off the idea that any change can happen through the political system because they don't take McGovern seriously. They pretty much accepted that Nixon is going to win again. And so I do think there is sort of, and this is, you know, possibly, probably egotistical, but I do think that they have this belief that like the work that we're doing is important and can make a difference. And ultimately it did. Yes. So what I think about now is like, what are the conversations in like Fox News or even at the Washington Post or even at the New York Times? Like there's such an idea that they have to be objective for the New York Times and the Washington Post. And obviously Fox News is operating under their own subjectivity. Like I really think like, what are the conversations about what you want to achieve as an institution? Like, what is the mission of your newspaper? And I feel like that's really what it comes down to in terms of, like, I think that we can love all the president's men for being an excellent example of what we expect from objective news reporting. Like, you want the facts and you want the truth and you want people to be able to read those and determine for themselves that it was wrong and then to demand change. But I almost feel like now it's like we don't have objectivity anymore. I think in a post-truth world, it doesn't exist. And I think a lot of times you realize that this idea of objectivity is really just maintaining the status quo that we've already established as like white supremacist, racist, capitalist, oppressive. So like what's next for us in terms of media? And I don't think we've figured it out. Because I feel like if we knew what was next, then maybe how we cover all of these scandals would have mattered. Yes. Like, maybe people would have cared. And and I can't figure it out either. Like, I don't know what media needs to do differently. And I don't know what we as consumers need to do differently. It is like a two-way road. But I just think something needs to change for that galvanizing moment really to come. And maybe we're living it right now. I mean, people are on the streets, like people are demanding change. Like maybe we're living through it right now and we just don't know it yet, but something has to be different. I think otherwise I can't imagine the next four years or the next decade or the second half of our adult lives. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I I don't know. I think that, 
I think that we're we're only going to know by living through right now. I think that if progress yeah. can be made, it's it's watching the makeup, it's watching the dialogue change, and it's and it's watching someone with the bravery to to someone with the bravery and just the the time and the articulation from a political standpoint, but it's also media outlets changing the dynamics, like actively changing their dynamics, and as consumers of media, like getting enough time. To, to know that it's important, you know, like I, I think we're living through it. There's this, like little minor examples, um, you know, that a whole bunch of Fox News uh, uh, affiliates, you know, sort of a, not Fox News, but like the Australian equivalents, like got sh- shut down a, a whole bunch of local newspapers. And a couple of them just took the ownership. They bought the paper and they started their regional newspaper because they're telling their regional news stories was important to the locals. They changed to like a weekly outlet, you know, saved as many jobs as they could. And they broke even in their first month in Australia, one of the regional papers. And I feel like hmm. people placing importance on that journalism and what their, what their, you know, their goal is for their region, you know, speaking truth to power in their region, telling their regional stories, telling them what's important, telling them how, you know, national political policy is affecting them and the international sort of footprint of the world and how any of that permeates through. It's like, well, that can actually be important. It, you know, you know, if we have a subscription base or whatever, I feel like we're living it. I feel like things are changing. I, you know, when when people, when there are consequences for posting dumb, dumb, you know, you know, uh, blatantly like trying to get both sides of an argument where there's no both sides, things causing you know resignations in the New York Times in 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 public disgrace scenarios. I think that that's a change. Like that's it's 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 an interesting change. Um, but I think that, you know, podcasts and other things are, there's a, there's a world out there where it's changing, but like you and I said, I don't know if we can just get through fucking 2020, if we could just survive 2020, then maybe we can like reflect. There might be like an addendum, an epilogue going like, did things change in 2020? And, and I'm hoping that part of this dialogue in this show is, is exactly like proposing some of that stuff. Well, that's the thing too, is like, I think that we, we have to live through this moment and every day, somehow we're getting closer to the election. (laughs) I don't know how that keeps happening. I don't know how it's mid June already, but you know, we are getting closer and closer to that. So I think also there's a lot of change to your point that could happen very quickly in the next few months, hopefully for the better, potentially for the worse. And like you said, like, who knows, you know. I don't know if people who live through monumental changes know that they're living through them or like how think, you can add up. The evidence is that we don't like, we right, don't. Yeah. Right, I don't right think now, we do. Right now we're living through this and all it is doing is making us exhausted and, and, and you just have to knuckle down and keep going. Like you can't, like I, I don't, I think it's unfathomable right now to know how big some of the changes of just this year are going to be on the, the world. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know that I can, I sometimes after I'm very angry, I just get very sad. So <laughs> I could be oh. in that melancholy state of mind right now. Well, well, but you know, I mean, like we desperately want things to be better. I mean, I think yeah. that's the, I think that's the end game here is like, there's so much that we could say about what we want to be better. And there's so many people out there right now working each day to make that the case. And like, more power to those people you're the best of us and we're here to you know do whatever we can 
Rox, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes again. I love getting angry with you and talking about this movie. Yeah, man. I appreciate it every single time. Thank you for being you. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, yeah, I mean, you know, you know how I feel. So, you know, we got it. You're the best. Talk to you soon. Ditto. Ah, oh, Roxanne Haddadi, the exact person that I felt was needed to talk about this show at this minute, at this time. Man, she's fun to talk to. At Roxana, R-O-X-A-N-A underscore Hadadi, H-A-D-A-D-I, is the best place to seek out all of her wonderful work. Pajiba, Brightwall Darkroom, some amazing stuff actually for Brightwall Darkroom. The AV Club, uh, she is all over the place and that is uh, really I mean, you, you're doing yourself a favor by really following and absorbing any of the wonderful critics and culture writers and journalists that uh, join us as part of this show. It's something I'm particularly proud of, and Roxanne's work is definitely of that standard without question. Thank you all so much for listening to the show. Um, we are excited to continue to bring you a, a great stream of new episodes as they come up, some exciting guests coming up, um, and a lot more episodes coming up in greater frequency than we've done before, going basically to four episodes a week, um, from two, then to three, now to nearly four. So thank you so much for following along. I am your host, Blake Howard. One Blake Minute is where you can find me. At ATPM Pod is where you can find the show on Twitter. And OneHeatMinute.com is where you can find us for everything. If you want to email us, reach out either on those channels on Twitter or at um, uh, the website email address, which is mail at OneHeatMinute.com. If you can support the show and you have the means to, we'd love if you could just go into the description of any podcast app that you're using and there is a donation uh, link to go off and donate as a one-off or a recurring basis. That will support all of the One Heat Minute productions that are going forward. If you can't, a share is enough. A review is enough. We are grateful for you listening. We're grateful for you being part of the show. I hope you're enjoying every episode as much as we're enjoying producing it. We'll catch you on another episode very soon.